Welcome to Heartland Church. It is our prayer that as you listen to the following message, you would experience the heart of God for your life. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Now, let's join this week's service already in progress. I want to jump back into where we've been the last couple of weeks in preparation for Father's Day, because next week is Father's Day. And so in preparations for Father's Day, I want to I continue to look at Hebrews 11. It's the story of great fathers in the faith and great mothers in the faith and what they accomplished for the kingdom. And it, it's, it's called the, the faith chapter. It's the story of these, these people. But one of the often overlooked themes of Hebrews 11 is not just these individuals who accomplished much, but it's the theme that we've been touching on, and that is that these individuals were part of this eternal plan of God, that God is always working multigenerationally. There's a reason that God referred to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isn't that an interesting thing? That God identifies, it's an amazing enough that God would identify himself with one, one generation. He's the God of Abraham. But then he identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by that, God gives us a clue, a little window, a hint, that he is always working multi-generationally. And if we have eyes to see, I'm telling you, this would help us a lot and, and, and infuse the mundane with meaning. Often what the enemy does is he begins to torment us over the mundane suffering of life, the frustration in life. And if we lose perspective and we don't see the forest for the trees, we just look at what's going on in the moment, we can lose perspective and not realize that God is always working multi-generationally. We are connected to the last generation and we're reaching into the next one. And what we do matters. What our choices, our attitude, our perceptions of God are the bridge between generations. That you can literally squander in your generation what the last generation labored for. And I'm not talking about money. Now that applies. But I'm talking about something much more valuable. I'm talking about the spiritual resources. Wisdom and revelation. Character. We talked last week about how we can literally create a clearing for the next generation. It says in Hebrews 12, coming right out of this passage on the great men and women of faith, it then says to throw off sin and everything that so easily entangles and let us run the race set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, and then it says, some translation, I love this one, the pioneer and finisher of our faith. He's the beginning and the end. He not only starts it, he finishes it. What God has begun in you, he will complete. He didn't start it to just leave it unfinished. When I, just, when I was just a brand new Christian, went into Teen Challenge, and uh, I was just, I mean, I was brand new. I was just trying to hang on by my fingertips, and we used to sing this little ditty, and that was about what it is, a little ditty. And we'd, have, we'd sit in the living room of, of, uh, on Cottage Grove there, over by Drake. We had this big old house. It was a run-down place where you'd flush the toilet on the third floor and water the plants on the first floor. I mean, it was a rough place, but Jesus moved in that place, and we would sing this song. 
He didn't bring us this far to leave us. He didn't teach us to swim to let us drown. He didn't build this home in us to move away. He didn't lift us up to let us down. I'm telling you, that, that song breathed hope into my heart so many times. Because I didn't know if I could, if I had it in me to live for Jesus. But we'd sing that song and I'd realize, man, he didn't start something he didn't intend to complete. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Here's the catch, though. Sometimes the things he starts in you aren't completed until you're gone. Sometimes what started in you, your grandchildren will complete. And when we realize that, we realize that we're not only rooted in the past, we not only build on the foundation of those of yesteryear, we're building on their investment. And that's the, that's the context of Hebrews 11 and 12. Hebrews 11 talks about all that these heroes of the faith, some of which gave their lives. Talking about Iris Ministries, Roland and Heidi. They've had some of their ministers martyred for the faith, beaten to death, beheaded. Right now, they're, they're, these Muslim terrorists are beheading people uh, in the villages, the Christian villages. They've had whole villages converted. They've made an investment, but there's something secured in the spirit by those investments. And often we don't understand that. And so we have this limited perspective and we get discouraged when we don't realize that there's a rollover of that investment. That's good for us to understand when we're in the battle that we're, we're literally creating a clearing. As a pioneer, we're going into that spiritual wilderness and we're clearing things that have not been cleared for our family tree. We're clearing things for our church family that have not been established. There are things that God releases in a generation that have never been released before. I've got to, I'm so tempted to get into this other subject. I mean, I feel like I've got to have the breaks. I'm just going to touch on it, okay? And then next week, I think we're going to get into it. Okay, pray for me. Because it's a slippery slope if I step into this verse. Okay, here we are. Deuteronomy 29 29, the hidden things belong to the Lord, but those things that are revealed are given to us. See, God's exclaiming point. <laughs> the things given to us, the things revealed are given to us and to our children's children. I'm telling you, there are, there are seasons in human history where God releases things that have never been released before. When they're hidden, they're God's. He's kept them to himself and for himself, but for an appointed time. We've talked about this before. Here I go. I've got to be careful. Okay. okay, one more thing. We've talked about this before, that revelation, mystery and revelation, are one of the primary elements of God's government and his purposes, eternal purposes. God hides things, he reveals and he conceals. He conceals and he reveals. He conceals things to hold back the progress of his purposes and to hold back from his people until they're ready. And to launch us further in his purposes, he's got to bring us up to speed. He's got to bring us up to a certain place of development so we can release further truth to us. Because when he releases the revelation, the revelation is the invitation into the reality that he's revealing to us. 
So contrary to American Christianity, it's not revelation as hobby, okay? Ooh, I just discovered something new in the word. And then it just stays there. Like we just kind of get goosebumps and we talk about it. It's more than that. that. Revelation is what releases God's purposes. And so the things that are hidden are God's, but when he gives them to us, listen to what it says, it is given to us and to our children's children. See, it's a multi-generational thing. The, the revelation that you as an individual break into is really a family thing. It is for the generations that will come from your loins. It is, it is a family thing. There's an inheritance. And we don't understand that. I don't understand that. So I'm, t- I'm not up here saying, you don't understand it, and I do. I'm saying we don't understand the implications of that. That when God reveals things, it pushes the kingdom forward. There are things that God withholds until the given time. And when he releases it, understand that revelation is an invitation to you to enter into a greater reality. Again, we we touched on this a couple Wednesday nights ago. It's why we use the, the language information. We're informed or we're instructed, internal structure. God is building something in us that can hold what he wants to release on us. When Jesus, at the end of his ministry, sat with his disciples just before his crucifixion, the Last Supper, that whole scenario there, they go into the garden, he said, guys, there's so much more I wanted to release to you. So much more I wanted to teach you, but I couldn't because you could not bear it. Literally, that word means you couldn't stand up the weight of it. Because revelation brings access to a reality that if you're not ready for, will do you more harm than good. See, that's the whole principle of the occult. The enemy loves to release you into revelation that you can't handle yet. He's not a good father. Jesus talked about, to the Pharisees, he said, "You're, you're of your father, the devil. When the devil fathers you, he'll allow you to break into good things before the time, and the good things become bad things and kill you and destroy you and and ravage your life. But God is a good father. He'll withhold the things for you until you can handle it. He informs you. The process of your education is a process where God builds character in you before he drops the knowledge on you. That's why 1 Peter says, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. He doesn't say, get saved and get educated. Add to your faith virtue. It's important that we have the character that can handle the revelation that we're to walk in. And so this thing, this... this thing of crying out to God for revelation. I was telling him at the prayer burn yesterday, I've just felt this, this earnestness in the, by the Spirit of God. There is such a willingness of God to release some things to us. There is a... I know this sounds weird, but I've seen it in the Spirit over this church, and I feel it this morning, just this. It's like the, it's the, the thin... The thin layer between us and the birth of the next thing, okay? It's getting thin and God wants to release it, but what he's looking for are those who are willing to cooperate with the process that will qualify us to be the people that can handle what he wants to release to us. And instead, what we do is we cry out for it, and that launches us into this process that can at times be challenging and even painful, And we get offended, and we park it and think, well, man, if that's what 
being a friend of God is like who needs enemies, you know? And we quit praying, we get offended because we, we ask for blessing and instead we got hardship. But we don't understand that the hardship is going to qualify us for the blessing. The hardship's going to produce in us the character and make us into the very person that can handle the blessings we're crying out for. I'm telling you, there is such an earnestness in God And I feel like the Lord is in the business right now. He's stirring up hunger within us. Do you feel hungry lately? Are you hungry for more of God? I'm sorry, I'm spitting up here. I don't know if you can see it. It's just a good thing we got a big space here. I got to take a drink. I'm sorry. I always wonder, you know, can you see that? Do you you see it? You don't? That I shouldn't have called attention to it. (laughs) There's this thing in me. It comes in my head and it, you know, I think it's got to come out my mouth. I do remember one time in the old church, their old building, I was preaching away and the, the, alt, the, the front row, we started putting more chairs in front of the pews and uh, as the church was growing and I was preaching and and there was DJ. And our eyes met. He looked at me, I looked at him and he just went like this. I didn't say a word, I kept preaching. And... Uh, so I thought of, you know, we, we, if we're either going to do one of two things, big altar area, or I'm going to start wearing a salad shield on my chest, you know, about halfway through, squeegee it off, keep preaching, you know. So we went with the altar, it looks better, you know, but anyway, we digress, right? Okay, so I'm telling you, there is a hunger that God is stirring up, and it's an invitation. The very fact that you're hungry for something you don't yet have is a sign that God is awakening something in you that he wants to give you. God never toys with us. He's not a cruel father that makes promises that he'll never satisfy. Your desires themselves are indications of your destiny. Let me say it again. Your desires are indications of your destiny. The very reason that you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. You you don't know what I'm struggling with desiring. Well, I'm just telling you that behind that desire is part of your DNA. It's part of your destiny. What the enemy entices you is to get it outside of God's will, get it outside, uh, you know, take a shortcut, not go through the process. But behind every temptation is a hint of your destiny. The only reason it's tempting is because it's it's touching on some form of your identity. It's something that you were made for, that the enemy enemy may be uh, offering you a twisted, perverted form of it, but if you just look at the thing itself and realize, what am I looking for in that thing? For instance, sexual immorality. There are men who struggle with porn addictions. But what it is, it's a a way to connect with false intimacy because there's something within them that wants to know and truly be known. There's a reason that the scriptures speak of the the act of marriage, that that physical act of intimacy where a marriage is consummated. One of of the, the, the terms that is referred to in scripture is they knew each other. There's an intimacy in that act that you will not touch anywhere else. But it's so heavy, it is so intimate, that you're never to enter into that without a covenantal agreement, a vow that says, till death do us part. I'm with you till the end. 
And only then can you handle the stress, the, in, the intensity of that intimacy. And if you partake of that beforehand, you're playing with fire. But that desire, that the man who, who, who has, a, has a click, that, that his, 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 there's, there's something in that, that mouse, that finger that clicks the mouse, that he just is tempted with that, it's really an indication of your destiny. You were made for so much more. And the enemy is getting, giving you a taste of your destiny, but it's in a shortcut, and it will never satisfy. God wants to give you that intimacy to know and truly be known. Don't settle for shortcuts. Man's problem is not that he pursues his desires too much, it's that he settles for too little. Temptation is always settling for the crumbs when a meal at his right hand awaits us. Taste and see that the Lord is good. There's pleasures at his right hand. The real satisfaction for all those things that we've looked to in sin, the real satisfaction are found in his presence and then from his presence in these other avenues through which God wants to bless us. But God will always give you the character before he gives you the knowledge. He'll give you the character before he gives you the experience. The enemy wants to entice you to jump into the experience before you have the character to handle it. And you don't have the character to handle it until you said, I do. Until you can say from your heart, I am with you to the end, till death do us part. And so God's a good father. He wants, to, he wants to school us. He wants to train us. He wants to raise us up. And I'm telling you, there's an invitation from heaven to engage us in a process where he will begin to satisfy those longings. There are things that some of you have been longing to understand, and it's on the other side of your present trial. It's on the other side of the thing you're going through right now. Be encouraged. Your trial's an indication that there's something great on the other side. This is not just some meaningless, meaningless thing you're going through. God's not some you know, twisted little child pulling the legs off a bug. <laughs> See if he can crawl without this one. <laughs> you know, it's not God. God's a good father. And everything you go through is for a purpose. I'm not saying everything you go through is from God. But I am saying that everything you go through, God will work it out for your good and he will make it worth it all. And the real battle is our attitude towards God in the midst of it. What I really felt this morning, and I want to get into this wisdom thing, but I feel like we need to wait till next week. I really want to establish this truth. We were talking last week out of Hebrews chapter 11. And we talked about how Jesus is both the pioneer and finisher of our faith. When he's a pioneer, it means he's the forerunner. He's the one that goes through the clearing. He goes, he goes and makes a clearing. He goes through, he, he makes a road where there is no road. He goes where there's the rough, the, the rough, unhewn land, and he goes through and he provides a clearing so the rest of us can come in and settle on his victory. And the fact is, he's called every one of us to that. That there are things that we go through if we would just understand that we are preparing a future clearing for our, the future generations. There are things that I enjoy in God that my mom and dad paid the price for. And had God allowed them to cash in on their sacrifices, 
I would have had to start at a lower level in life. But they didn't. They rolled it forward, sometimes out of choice and sometimes out of God's choice. They rolled it forward. And now I get to start with something more. And I'm praying that my kids can start with more. And my grandbabies can start with more. My dad and I were working on my deck this week. And uh, oh my goodness. He's like 76. He worked me under the table. And we were just talking about the family. And and, uh, I'm telling you what. If you look in the dictionary, the word dysfunctional, my family tree is right there as an example. I mean, what my mom and dad came out of is, just blows my mind. I mean, absolute craziness. It'll make your hair stand up. I won't go into details, but he was telling me, and every time we get together, he tells me a little more, and I'm like, are you for real? <laughs> Golly. Oh, just nuts. But my dad, as a 15-year-old kid, his, his, his mom had burned to death in front of him when she, he was a six-year-old boy. He was sitting at the kitchen table, and she was taking something out of the stove, and a towel she had, or some apron she had on caught on fire, and she ran out the door to jump in the snow, and she was a ball of flames, dove into the snow, and he said he remembers her coming back in. Her clothes were burnt off, and she was all black. And she walked in like this, fell into the bed, and just laid there moaning for a couple days and then died. Luckily, his father was, was home that day. He went and woke his dad up. He came in, and uh, mom died. He, they, mom, so his dad takes my dad out to Montana somewhere with one of his sisters and dropped her off somewhere. He's never seen her since. He doesn't know whatever happened to her. She was, he was six when they dropped her off. Another one ended up in a psych ward and died there. And, and uh, just, I mean, just tragic. So then my grandfather became an alcoholic, and uh, married a woman, I think my granddad was like the sixth wife she had, or husband she had. And uh, I mean, it was just, I mean, crazy. And then she had, she had at least one, one child by another man while she was married to my grandpa. So my grandpa gave her a name, but it wasn't his. And I mean, just this craziness. My dad was just right, this, this woman would beat him and just tell him he's a loser and he's never going to amount to anything. And in the eighth grade, they, the principal called him in and said, listen, if you promise not to come back, we'll graduate you. It was his aunt. She was the principal. Couldn't read or write. But in this, just this darkness, I mean, terrible sexual immorality, twisted stuff and alcoholism and, and just all this stuff. And my dad was in the house one day all alone and the radio was on and there was a guy on there named Oral Roberts. And Oral Roberts said, if, preach the gospel. And he said, if you want to accept Jesus, reach out your little hand, reach out your hand, probably didn't say little hand, reach out your hand and put it on the radio. And my dad looked around, there was no one there and he just, he put his hand on the radio and he prayed. And he thought, I don't feel any different. Well, lo and behold, his stepmama got religion for a few weeks. She would do that every now and then. And she drug him to this, this uh, it was like a crusade. There was a guy who had this ministry in Duluth. It was a TV ministry called Harbor Lights. Because in Duluth, where I was raised, there was, there was Lake Superior, the harbor. And it was, so it was Twin Cities and the Twin Ports. That's Minnesota Twins. So we were, the twi- we were raising the Twin Ports, and it was Harbor Lights. He would wear a little captain's uniform, and it's Harbor Lights. Well, welcome. And he'd preach in a little captain's uniform, you know. It was really progressive back then. And uh, so then he was pretty famous, you know. It was like one of the only things on TV. 
And uh, so then he would go out to the surrounding communities and he would, he would do these crusades and they'd come out to see the guy, you know, that, and it was kind of a big deal. So my, my mother, my dad's stepmother drug him and he was 15 years old and the guy preached the gospel. My dad didn't understand all of it. He just knew he wanted what the guy said and he went down the altar and he cried through to salvation and they had a Bible school. And my, my, step, my dad's stepmother said, you're going to that school. He's 15. Can't, he can't really read. But she said, you're going. They took him home, packed him up, and sent him to Duluth. And he got to this school and went through their Bible school, met this 17-year-old girl who was my mom. Her dad molested her sisters. And my grandmother divorced him, and he died of alcoholism when she was a girl. I mean, just this, these broken people. But they met Jesus and then my dad went home after that first semester and his stepmother said, you're never going back to that blankety blank. So she'd lost her religion again. And my dad went out in the field and he said, Jesus, he said, I don't know what to do. God, I want to serve you, but I don't know what to do. He went back in the house. She said, pack your things. You're going to school. And he never returned. He left home at 15 years old. And, and uh, I mean, my dad, he'll tell you, he didn't, you know, he, he didn't know Hardly anything. No one trained him. Just, I mean, about basics of life. But he, he met Jesus and met my mom, and they started serving Jesus together, and they had kids. And, and uh, I'm so blessed to have been raised in a godly home. My dad would tell me every night, I love you. Give me a kiss. I remember I, the day I stopped kissing my dad goodnight, I was about 12 years old. I know he said, whoa, that's a little old. Huh? We were a very affectionate family. But my dad, we were, he was pastoring a church up in northern Iowa. And uh, it was after church. I went over. I said, love you, Dad. Good night. Kissed him. We had a guest speaker. And I was tired, so I almost went over and kissed him. And I, I zoomed in for a kiss. I'm puckering up. And the guy said, are you going to kiss me? And I realized what I was doing. That was the last time I kissed my dad. And uh, I remember running upstairs, putting the covers over my head, thinking, that was really embarrassing. Never again. So until I met Leif Hetland, I don't think I'd ever kissed another man. So, uh, but I, I was raised in a good home where, they, where I, was, I was given the things of God. I remember going into Teen Challenge and I, I ran from God when I was 14. And just, you know my testimony, I won't belabor the fact, but I got lost. And when I came back to Jesus, I remember being in Teen Challenge with about 70 other guys. And one of the counselors pulled me aside and he said, son, what is your background? And I told him, I said, you know, my dad's a preacher. And he said, I can tell. He said, you better thank God for what you got. He said, because you're not like these other guys. And essentially, you're saying you're starting the race down the road. You didn't have to start from the starting line because of what your mom and dad poured in you. And I'm telling you, our choices matter. There were times I watched my dad. I mean, he was wronged by people. People ripped him off, did him wrong. And he always kept his integrity. If, if he had to lose money to keep his name, even though they, were, they would defame him, and stuff, he, would, he would come through because his name was better, was more valuable than those things. And he would always do right by people. And I thank God he held the line. And my kids, my kids, my kids are the recipients of that. I'm telling you, your attitude matters. We clear things in the spirit. We don't understand that. But I'm telling you, there are battles that if we fight now, our children won't have to fight later. Yes. 
You understand that? If there's, there's things that if you will conquer in your generation, your kids will never have to face. Fred Stoker's a great example. Fred Stoker came from a, a, a long line of sexual immorality. I believe in one of his books he talks about how his dad wanted to purchase a prostitute for him as a birthday present when he was a young, just a young man. He's still a teenager. Fred, when Fred got saved, he was dating, I think, four women and engaged to three or two of them. And he got saved and he realized, I am going to pass this on to the next generation of stokers if I don't deal with this. And Fred went to battle to conquer that thing and wrote a book about it called Every Man's Battle. It's sold millions of copies. And now Fred has given that victory away to other people. Travels out of this house all over the world carrying that message. And I'll tell you what, his boys, his girls are young men and women of God. They don't have to worry about that because their dad conquered something. He went into his promised land and he drove out the giants so his kids could be raised in peace. I want to say it was, was it John Adams who said, he wrote his wife, it's a famous letter where he wrote his wife and he said, I must study war so my children can study government and their children can study art and, you know, you know those kind of things. It's an amazing concept. We pay the price for the next generation. I'm telling you, your decisions, your choices, your attitude matters. This morning as I was getting ready, I just, uh, all of a sudden, Emily came on my heart. Emily Huffy, and just very strong, and I felt like the Lord told me to tell her. I want to share this with you because it's an example of the principle. Her dad right now is struggling with his health. He needs a miracle. They don't know what's going on. He keeps having to have blood transfusions. They're trying to figure out, is it cancer? Is it, what is this? And the Lord told me, Emily, your attitude matters. The way you've postured yourself before God really does matter to what's going on in your dad's life, spiritually and physically. You see, we think of spiritual battles as the external circumstance. And that's what, that's a, that's what arouses us. That's the battle we think we're in. And those are very real things. And God wants the kingdom of heaven to come crashing in to the, 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 the fallenness of this world and overturn all that stuff. And the way that happens is through people like you and I. But we're the ones that get caught in the fray. We're, we're between the, the crashing wave of heaven and the, the, the opposition of hell. And we're, we are, our lives are the battlefield. And ultimately it's our mind that is the battlefield. And the external battle of circumstance is not the real deal. The real deal is the internal battle of our perspective on God in the midst of those external circumstances. When all hell is crashing in on us, will we hold the line, God, you are good. Lord, I don't understand this, but I'm not getting off this ground. You see, that was the battle in Job. And what did God do? He said to Job, or he said to the enemy, have you considered my servant Job? I mean, think about that. It says the sons of God. It got this, this divine counsel in the heavens. These, this, this, these uh, angelic beings gather before the counsel of God. And God says to the enemy who struts up and he said, Have you considered my servant Job? What an amazing thing. That God 
bragged on his boy. Man, that should stir our heart. God, make me the man that you could say, have you considered my servant David? You say, well, wait a minute, I know the rest of the story. I'm not so sure I want to go there. The fact is, it's a battle over our worship. Are we going to hold the line? Do we really believe God is good? God is looking for those who will hold the line. And the enemy said, God, if, he, if he'll, you take your hand off him, he'll curse you and, he, and then he'll die. And so God said, you can touch him, but you can't take his life. And we know what Job went through. But Job held the line. You see, God is looking for those who will stand in the goodness of God and, and, and hold to that perspective in spite of the situation you're going through. Some of you, man, you're going through it right now. But I'm telling you, your attitude really does matter. Not only for you, but it is creating a clearing. You're establishing things in the spirit. You're removing things. You're displacing the enemy off of ground that your kids will inherit. See, the way of God is, he starts with a man or a woman, an Abraham. He enters into covenant with that one. For me, it was a man named Jim. And a woman named Caroline, my mom's mom. My grandma was born in abject poverty and never got above it. She was a very serious woman, except she was someone who was a lot. Low anointing tolerance, okay? If God began to move, my grandma got drunk. She, they would, she would be the last one. They'd carry her out of the church, drunk in the spirit. She'd be laughing. It's the only time my grandma laughed. I mean, she was... She had been through a lot of things, and she, they'd carry out, she'd be laughing, she'd be drunk in the spirit, and she prayed for her grandkids. God starts with the generation, he starts with the one, but what does he do? He starts with the one, and the one becomes a family, and the family becomes a tribe, and the tribe becomes a nation. That's what God is establishing. I've been hooked by this little verse in Psalm 78. I want to say it's verse 5. You've got to look at it in the King James Version. It's a good rendering in the King James Version. It's not that the other ones are, are wrong. It just doesn't capture this facet of what I love about the King James Version. It said, and God established a testimony in Jacob. Jacob became Israel. God established a testimony in Jacob. The old-time Pentecostals used to talk about, how's your testimony? Have you maintained your testimony? Have you maintained your witness? And what they meant was, are you behaving yourself before the unsaved? Have you, have you kept your testimony, or did you, get, you start acting like you shouldn't and ruined your testimony? And there's, there's truth to that, but that's, it, it's focusing on the externals, and that is true. We need to maintain that. But the real testimony flows out, or the, the, the externals flow out of the real testimony because the testimony is, what do you say about him in the midst of hardship? When you're going through it, when you're not seeing the breakthrough that you were hoping for and you were praying for and that you were promised, will you stand in those moments and will you testify, will you be a witness for the defense, the defense of God, like Job, that I'm going to be a witness for the defense, and the prosecuting attorney, the enemy, who's coming and trying to corner you and getting you to, to deny your witness, that you, he'll press you and he'll remind you of the hardships you've been through, and will you stand and say, I don't understand all that, but this I know, God is good. 
He is faithful. I'm telling you, when, when God can find a man or woman like that, I'm not saying that your life will be all roses and there isn't, everything's going to turn out the way you want it to in this generation. But I am telling you that in the long run it will. You may not live to see it. You may have to see it as part of the great cloud of witnesses. You see it from that perspective. But I'm telling you, the real battle is not the changing of your circumstances. The battle is the establishment of your heart and the refusal to accuse God when you're going through hardship. Matthew chapter 11. John the baptizer, Jesus' cousin. He's the one who announced Jesus' ministry. Behold, the man of God who takes away the sin of the world. The crowd parts and there's Jesus and everybody's in awe. John announces, he's the one with the revelation. The Lord told him, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend like a dove, that's the one. And John sees it, he's a seer. And I don't know if everybody else saw it, I think they did. But John saw it, he heard it, he validated it, he leveraged all the influence he had, the anointing he had, and he said, guys, this is the guy. And his ministry began to shrink. His newsletter, people started canceling, canceling unsubscribing to his emails, don't send me anymore. You know, his offerings went down. No, you know, people start leaving his school and going to the Jesus School of Discipleship. And, and, uh, but John is saying, hey, I must decrease and he must increase. He's okay with that. And then John confronts the king over his illicit relationship with his sister-in-law. And the sister-in-law gets a bee in her bonnet and says, we're, you know, arrest him. And, they, and so now he's sitting in prison. And it says that while in prison, he hears stories of what's going on in Jesus' ministry. Can you imagine? You're the guy who announced this, and now you're in prison... And you hear about all this great stuff happening. And knowing John, you think, well, John's going to, man, hallelujah, this is awesome. But John's a normal guy. He's just like you and I. He's struggling. And so some of his guys, some of his disciples come on visiting day. You know, they're, they're in the visiting room at the local prison. They brought him some, you know, brownies and stuff. And they're sitting there eating brownies. And John said, listen, guys, I need you. Next time Jesus is in the area and he's preaching, I need you to go ask him a question for me. They said, what's that, John? They, he said, ask him, is he the one or should we expect another? I want you to think about that. This is John the baptizer who was filled with the Spirit since he was in his mama's womb. He's the one who heard from heaven, saw the dove descend, and he was the one who declared that Jesus is the Messiah, and now he's in these hard circumstances that are making him question his own message. He's struggling. You ever been there? Where you, you declare, man, this, this is what's going to happen. This, man, I, and you begin to be shaken. You're, you're, you're struggling in that time. And so... John's disciples go to Jesus and they, they kind of make their way after the service is dying down. And they, they say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, we just came from John. Well, the service wasn't dying down. I, I went a little too far in my elaboration because Jesus was still teaching because he says this. They said to Jesus, Jesus, John told us to ask you, are you the one or should we be expecting another? Why would John doubt that? 
What made John? He heard all these stories. He heard all these testimonies of the good things that God is doing. But rather than building his faith, it was causing an erosion of his faith. What's the deal with that? I don't know about you, but I've been there. There have been times where the testimonies that should have built my faith and encouraged me simply rubbed me wrong because I was needing the same deliverance. I was needing the same miracle. I was needing the same breakthrough, and I wasn't getting it. Now, I know that's not pretty. I wish that wasn't true about me, but the fact is it's true. And there's times where the testimonies that were meant to encourage me just kind of ground me a little more. And it made me question, Lord, you know, what's wrong with me? Lord, you know, question, just struggling with that. And so Jesus says to the disciples, he said this, he said, you go tell them, the blind see, the deaf hear, and the lame walk. And then tell them this, blessed are you who are not offended on account of me. He pronounced a blessing on those who don't get offended when the breakthrough they were expecting doesn't happen. There is a pronouncement of blessing on those that when they have an expectation and it doesn't come through, that they still keep the faith and they don't get offended. And then it says, that as the disciples were leaving, Jesus said this, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Was it a weed swaying, reed swaying in the wind? No. He said, I tell you, there was none greater born among women than John. Why would he tell them that? Why, why was he talking to the crowd? I believe it wasn't so much for the crowd as it was for the disciples as they're walking away so they could go back to John and say, John, listen, this is what he said. He said, these are the things that are happening. And John could start ticking off all the promises in the prophetic books, all these promises of deliverance. But here, the one who announced the deliverance the one that said, he, he got his own calling out of Isaiah. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. That same book spoke of Jesus saying that the Messiah would set at liberty the captive. And now the one who announced him as that Messiah is sitting captive. And he's struggling. And then they tell him what Jesus said. And I believe they said, and, and John, you know what else he said? He said, we've never, there's never been a man greater born among women than you. I just love that about Jesus. Because Jesus understood by their question, John is shaken. He is actually questioning his message and your position, Jesus. He's in the fire. And Jesus, I love the word verses, he considers we are but dust. The Lord didn't condemn him and say, well, man, you would think more of John. Man, he was, he was filled with the Spirit's when he was still in his mama. He declares to the crowd, there's never been a man greater born among women. And then he says, but greater are, is the least of these in the kingdom of heaven. We get an upgrade. The least in the kingdom is an upgrade from what John was. I'm telling you, if there's a reason that John was called the voice of one calling in the wilderness, 
Prepare ye a way for the Lord. John was a pioneer. And often pioneers clear the ground but never get to see the city that rises on the ground that they cleared. And the real breakthrough from their labors happened long after they're gone. But when we understand our role as pioneers and fathers and mothers, and we understand that God is always operating multi-generationally. He refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he refers to himself as the God of Jim, Dave, and Evan, and Nathaniel, and Caitlin, and Lisa, and Noah, and <laughs> Tyler, and him. He's always, he's always working. So if we understand that God is working multi-generationally, we can step out of our trial and realize there's more on the line than my comfort and my immediate deliverance. There's more on the line than my circumstances being changed according to what I wanted to happen. And even according to what I thought I was promised. There's times we know, we, we've heard from God, but we add our timing to it. We get disillusioned because we had an illusion about the timing and that we thought we were going to experience those things. And I struggle at times talking about this because I don't want to tamper with anybody's faith. I believe we've got to set our face and believe for breakthrough now and never give up until our dying breath. We're, we're praying for breakthrough. We don't surrender and say, well, I'll be that generation. No! Because we won't create the clearing unless we're fighting for that deliverance. But the fact is, you are part of a much grander plan. And you might be the Abraham, you might be the Isaac, or you might be the Jacob. But God was establishing a testimony, a lineage, a story of deliverance multi-generationally. And when we realize that, it'll stiffen our resolve. And that's what Hebrews 12 means. In light of the fact that all these people rolled their deliverance forward, Six, fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the finisher of your faith, and let us run this race, throwing off the sin and everything that entangles. And let's lay something for the next generation and realize that what we're storing up, the next generation is going to run even further. And the real significance of our life is connected to those things. Not our immediate comfort or the house we live in or, you know, the car, the financial breakthrough and all that. That's fine. Believe God for that. God wants to bless you. I believe that. But I'm telling you, the real wealth that you accumulate in life and that you will be known for in eternity is not connected to those physical things. It's connected to, did you stand your ground and hold the line and say, God is good. I don't understand this. I don't understand why all this is happening. But I refuse to bend on this principle. God is good. And he, it, it says in Hebrews 11, there were those who were tortured and refused to be released. The enemy leveraged the pain to try to manipulate their behavior and their testimony. And they said, do your best, but I'm going to stand on this principle. 
And this is part of the eternal plan of God. Your life is so significant that we're part of this great cloud of witnesses. They've already gone before, but they're watching, they're looking in. They have their eyes on this thing. Why? Because they have a vested interest. They paid a dear price for what you and I are walking in. And they're wanting to be sure. They're, they're cheering us on. They're those in the stand. They ran their race and they, with their dying breath, passed the baton. And here's the thing. What we had access to by relationship in their life, we now receive as inheritance in their death. And we can run with what they gave us. They have a vested interest. And if we realize the weight of that, I'm telling you, every time a loved one passes, a man or woman of God, I used to say this, and go ahead and stand. I'll, I'll close with this. I used to say this. There's an old African proverb I heard. Every time a patriarch dies, a library burns down. And I couldn't help but think of that when Pastor Bob died. That this reservoir of knowledge burned down. But I tell you what, before Bob died, the Lord began to speak to me about this principle. And I'm telling you, there are things accessible. Inheritance is passed on through death. Death is what transfers wealth from one generation to another. And when the next generation knows who they are, when they can prove their identity, they can say, hey, I'm an heir. Then they have access to the, the, the lifelong accumulation of wealth, what it took those individuals decades and decades and decades to accumulate, you and I can access in a moment. And that's real stuff. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I ask God that you would encourage us this morning. Lord, I ask that you would, just put your hands up before the Lord, would you? Lord, I'm asking God that you would stiffen our resolve, Lord. God, help us to understand that we are part of your ongoing eternal plan. We are part of this long line of history of great men and women who gave their lives. Lord, we're not insignificant Christians living for the temporal, but Lord, we are those who are connected to your purposes. And I just feel like the Lord, Lord wants you to know this morning that he has a plan and a divine purpose for your family line. Your life is significant. And it may have been aborted up till now. The, your your, your, your uh, forefathers and, and mothers may have been lived a, a life that squandered the inheritance, but I'm telling you, you can pick it up and establish, just like Fred Stoker did, and say, you know what? From here on out, we're going to live according to our purposes. And your life, your family line fulfills its destiny. You've been listening to a presentation from Heartland Church in Ankeny, Iowa. For more information about our ministry and its available resources, visit us on the web at heartlandchurchonline.com. Thanks for listening.